ha ha welcome back to nappy boy radio i am nick munez this is nick's nonfiction. today on the show we have got sarah bakewell's the existentialism cafe i'd say i'm baked pretty well man holy crap my professor wanted me to write an essay about existentialism so i passed in a blank sheet of paper We'll start by asking what existentialism is. According to Sarah, it is sometimes said that existentialism is more of a mood than a philosophy, and that it can be traced back to the anguished novelists of the 19th century, and beyond that, to Blaise Pascal, who is terrified by the silence of infinite spaces. Getting liminal today, getting anxious, talking about existentialism. My parents, they sent me to conversion therapy. They wanted me to go from Pascal's to jewels. <laughs> it's a physics joke. So we're going to go all the way back to the soul-searching St. Augustine, the Old Testament's existentialist ecclesiastes. All the existentialists today. Webster defines the idea as a philosophical theory or approach which emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent determining their own development through acts of free will. You motherfuckers better start calling me Smith. The amount of will I have. Will Will Smith Smith his will? Sarah's idea today is that Sarté and his chick, Beauvoir, they have two of the purest forms of existentialism. I got deeper stories about how Camus slept with Sarté's wife. It's a pretty sick story. All these French despairing nihilists... All those arcs, and they still can't triumph. Sarah interviewed local Parisians, asked them what they thought existentialism is. It is a philosophy of expectation, tiredness, apprehensiveness, excitement, a walk up a hill, the passion for a desired lover, the revulsion from an unwanted one, gardens, the cold autumn sea at Le Havre, the feeling of sitting on an overstuffed upholstery, the way a woman's breasts pull as she lies on her back, yeah, I call that gap-toothed titties. <laughs> it's an existential chin-scratcher today. The thrill of a boxing match, a film, a jazz song, a glimpse of two strangers meeting under a street lamp. He made a philosophy out of vertigo, voyeurism, shame, sadism, revolution, music, and sex. Lots and lots of sex. Where do I sign up? We're doing the bonus segment at the end. Maybe we talk about the Parisian riots. What did the Waffle call his complete existential paradigm shift? An ego death. <laughs> Why don't dolphins have a midlife crisis? They have a porpoise. What did the hippie girl try to make me bathe with? Existential oils. Be right back with you about the author. About the author, Sarah Bakewell. A British bloke this one, she is, ain't she? Check out Harry Shit on Instagram. We make fun of the Brits over there. Patreon.com slash the niche. As you can tell, I'm going to reject a lot of her opinions. I've had my existentialism days. They're pretty much behind me at this point. It's a stop on the way. Existentialism shouldn't be a final destination. You heard that rambling French quote. It's not a real ideology. Walking up a hill, feeling good, watching a fight. What are you talking about? Sarah Bakewell. Quote, Bakewell was born on a seaside town of Bournemouth, England, where her parents ran a small hotel. 
When she was five, the family began traveling through India in a camper and continued to do so for two years before settling in Sydney, Australia. There, her father worked as a bookseller and mother was a librarian. Bakewell the Brain. She inherited her parents' reading abilities. Maybe that's why the average American's reading level is green eggs and ham. What did the existentialist pig say? What am I? She's been a cataloger of rare books for the National Trust since 2008. How do I apply for that? A cataloger of rare books? That's not fiction. And this book is from 2016. What do you call an existentialist werewolf? A why wolf. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back. Chapter 1, The Existentialist Cafe, Sarte. More like Farte. Sarte's search for phenomenology took him to Berlin, but he would have found the heartland of phenomenologists in a smaller city closer to home, Freiburg in Bressau, in the southwest corner of Germany, just over the French border. This is where the Existentialist Cafe is. I didn't explain this well in the intro, these existentialists, they think they're reinventing philosophy, so they're doing a little, like, revolution of thought. But what they call phenomology, observing phenomena, that's sociology. It's already a thing. So, like, if you just make up words as an academic, voila, you have an entire new area of research and you get to put your name on it. Phenomenology. I'm an Anarcho-liftocrarian. <laughs> I believe in no borders whatsoever. And whoever can bench press the most weight is king. Only chicks who can squat above 215 are allowed in. I don't know. If you just write a book about it, then now, now you're an official. And people didn't read my book, so you need a publisher on your side. Maybe we'll go deeper. Quote. With the Rhine separating it from France on the west and the somber black forest sheltering it on the east, Freiburg was a university center of about 100,000 people, a population often boosted by hikers or skiers passing through on their way to their holidays in the mountains. I got like 40 Swiss mountain towns marked on my map. Zermatt, oh my god, we're going to go think really hard there. <laughs> people of this time called Sarte a little Buddha. He was fat. Like, he didn't spend much time on the mountain. He was in the cafe, gulping caffeine all day. Tom about these fucking Moravinian students. There was Thomas Mazurk, Franz Bertano. Quote, Bertano was the sort of teacher who could work such miracles. A former priest trained in Aristotelian philosophy. He had resigned from the priesthood and lost an earlier teaching job after questioning the church's new doctrine of papal infallibility, which he considered indefensible. Papal infallibility. I get to touch as many little altar boys as I want because I am infallible. I have God on my side. Papal infallibility. <laughs> That's pretty sick. And this Bertano guy, it's indefensible. Sarah's going, these existentialists knew to distrust authority. I don't know. The police, they don't run as tight a shift in the mountains. If you're living up in a mountain town, you, you're not getting as harassed as often as a flatlander. You flatlanders down there. 
know, you realize there's a pretty large degree of self-reliance the further off-grid you go, and the illusion of authority, it starts to dissolve really quick. Alaskan men are their own masters. Wee-woo, wee-woo. This is a 20-car pileup on the Boulder Creek Icy Pass. Sir, I'm going to have to pull you over because of your license plate. The world we live in. Quote, they edited a yearbook in which they published phenomenological texts and taught basic university classes. The phenomenological kindergarten, as one of the key assistants Edith Stein called it, Stein was struck by the extreme devotion Husserl expected from her and other colleagues. So like I'm saying, they wrote the book and then make a little class, the kindergarten. It's not a cult, it's a classroom. She reduces the phenomenology again. It is essentially a method rather than a set of theories. You know, existentialism is more of a mood than an idea. (laughs) At the risk of wildly oversimplifying, its basic approach can be conveyed through a two-word command. Describe phenomena. Could have just said that, Sarah. So just kind of start describing things. You start doing this on accident when you're 12 years old. What is she even talking about? Like, people think I'm foreign because I say, what is this? You go to a mountain town and they're like, Yeah, sonny, you better check out Bone Splitter Gulch. You know where that is, right? What is this? Bone Splitter Gulch? What is this? They're like, are you Russian? Nobody talks like that here. What is this? Just describe phenomena. (laughs) Right over the bluff in the butte, you got another abandoned wash that you're going to have to walk over. All these mountain folks, they describe phenomena in their own slangish ways. I got the over-under on the jets. What's the betting line? What are you describing? You're gambling. You know, describing phenomena, breaking it down to the brass tacks. That's some philosophy bullshit. And these guys are acting big brain because... (laughs) They took over a cafe. I don't know. Like we learned in the Einstein book, his only philosophy was that there's no point in having freedom of speech if you don't have the time to organize your thoughts. And so, like, I'm just thinking about Hitler and how he took over an entire bar and then he just started radicalizing people. So this is like, they're just fucking circle jerking each other with sad ideas. Get politically involved. The existentialist mean. In the intro, he's saying existentialism is about female and gay rights. But he's talking about describing phenomena. Isn't it racist to notice patterns? Black people eat chicken. No, that's racist. I think this is why cultural Marxism is so big right now. Everyone is exactly the same. The way you get smart is by starting to notice patterns and building on those phenomenological... Plato's, the other OG philosophers, they called each other schizos as a compliment. Dude, you could hold so many ideas without believing them. Phenomology. It's who could be the most racist without being racist. (laughs) I gotta start reading some deeper philosophers who start measuring people's craniums and shit. What then is a cup of coffee? This is Sartre trying to sound smart. (laughs) 
I might define it in terms of its chemistry and the botany of the coffee plant, and add a summary of how its beans are grown and exported, how they are ground, how hot water is pressed through the powder and then poured into shaped receptacles to be presented to a member of the human species who orally ingests it. I could analyze the effects of caffeine on the body, or discuss the international coffee trade. I could fill an encyclopedia with these facts, and I would still get no closer to saying what this particular cup of coffee in front of me is. I mean, you gave it a backstory. <clears throat> it's how you approach the question. So instead of going, why do I hate black people? You go, wait, so there's an entire continent called Africa full of black people? <laughs> like, if you're stuck, you just change your approach to the point of view. I don't know, I'm trying to make it funnier than a cup of coffee. It's better to talk about racism. <laughs> How do you change your mind? You could pay for new experiences, or you could work your ass off, or there's a better way, just think about it. Here's a quote, just try it. If you attempt to sit for two minutes and think about nothing, you'll probably get an inkling of why intentionality is so fundamental to human existence. The mind races around like a foraging squirrel in a park, grabbing in turn at a flashing phone screen, a distant mark on the wall, a clink of cups, a cloud that resembles a whale, a memory of something a friend said yesterday, a twinge in a knee, a pressing deadline, a vague expectation of nice weather, a tick in the clock. Some Eastern meditation techniques aim to still this scurrying creature. But the extreme difficulty of this shows how unnatural it is to be mentally inert. Left to itself, the mind reaches out in all directions as long as it is awake, and even carries on doing it in the dreaming phase of sleep. All sounds pretty woo-woo, it's true. And see, I'm not taking this book too seriously, because they're like mixing an Eastern philosophy. I'm learning the deepest Western philosophies are setting the grounds for your politics. And I don't know if I want to move forward into that, but you get it. We'll do more patriotic bullshit this summer. Maybe we'll actually read a Camus book like The Rebel, because these philosophers kind of suck. <laughs> He's right. Meditating does the same thing for your brain that a huge experience or work can do. The goal is training your mind to control your body. And like even me, I'm not talking down from a position. Your body is in control. I need to work out in the morning. Otherwise, I will rip someone's fucking head off. And then I fucking meditate in the sauna and try to get my brain back in control. Because you're fucking shoulder checking people. You think you're big again. Yeah, you're never going to have a new idea if you're just running old ideas in your head. You got to seriously let those things play out and then tell your mind... We're not having that thought anymore. Let's come up with some new shit. I've been doing this show for five years and I still don't repeat myself. Like, <laughs> we gotta use the existentialism to grow. These heady nerds, they're just gonna keep you in circles. What is a cup of coffee, bro? Use this fucking bullshit to get rid of your old circular thoughts. That's what psychedelics will teach you. Fucking, you're not going to grow if you sit in a cafe every single day. you got to hit the slopes of Friedberg one day and then think about it the next day. You're going to get powder for brain if you're a snow bum. <laughs> and if you're Sarté, you're just going to buy into your own ideas. Well, I'm right about all this existential bullshit. Whatever. Extreme moderation except for stoicism.
Chapter 2. The Magician of Mezkirch. 1927, Martin Heidegger appears on the scene. Everyone is perplexed about being. Of all the perplexing things about being, Heidegger goes on the most perplexing of all this and that people fail to be sufficiently perplexed about it. I say the sky is blue, or I am happy, as if the little word in the middle were of no interest. But when I stop to think about it, I realize that it brings up a fundamental and mysterious question. What can it mean to say that a thing is? Heidegger's our sophist for the day. <laughs> He's doing like a worse version of Descartes, I think, therefore I am. He's going, but is. Like, what is am? What is being, dude? <laughs> That's not to say he's not asking a couple good questions. I am fundamental aspect of thought. Not trying to just be a dick about because people really like philosophy. I love this shit. I read it all the time. <laughs> like, I'm just saying, not a lot of world-class thinkers come out of the Southwest Pacific. There's a reason for it. You don't hear of Ding Ding Pot, the Philippinese philosopher. <laughs> like, I've heard of people from Malaysia say... They don't have a strong sense of identity. I watch YouTubers that go through Laos and all this crap. I'm trying to put it nicely. Some people in the Southwest Pacific, they do not know their own names. They don't know their names. The sense of self is more flimsy in certain parts of the world. Like, they live in a state of ego death. So they're more connected to the community, the day-to-day -day bullshit, enjoying it and getting their life. And we're so caught up, like... We are existentialists. We can't even see it until we get rid of our fucking patterns. Bro, you never have a good philosopher come out of Thailand because you need a, a like pedestal to look at things from. And pedestal was the wrong word, not looking down, but you need to create a sense of individuality to get smarter. The thing before, describing phenomena. How are you going to do that if you don't know your name? You get it? Otherwise, you're always stuck in groupthink. And I think that's what all of this bullshit going around is to do to us. Like, we're being dumbed down. The president is dead. Like, that should be a joke, that he's a demented guy who <laughs> is asleep half the time. But is just accepted as fact now. Heidegger. He's still not saying anything big. We have forgotten the brute reality of which all of us ought to be constantly stubbing our toes on. It's so weird, man. Like, the space between you and me? What is it, bro? So he's saying every day we should be having these thoughts. Martin grew up in a small town of Swabia. Father was a minister and a blacksmith. And then Martin went on to study divinity. Heidegger officially ceased to consider himself a believer, although signs of a yearning for sacred things are not hard to find in his work. Many years later, Hermann Heidegger revealed a secret he had heard from his mother long before his real father was not Martin Heidegger, but a doctor with whom she had an affair with. So that blacksmith wasn't really his dad. And then Heidegger, he's really punchable. This guy has his Thoreau phase. I can relate. He started wearing a specifically tailored version of traditional black forest dress, a brown farmer's jacket with broad lapels and a high collar, set off by knee-length breeches. His students called it his existential, or ownmost look, the latter of a reference to one of his favorite phrases. They found his funny, 
but he did not share the joke because his sense of humor was somewhere between peculiar and non-existent. <laughs> Dick, this guy's too smart to laugh with his students. What did he even fucking contribute here? Quote, Years later, and with a less sympathetic attitude, Daniel Dennett in Asborn Steglick Peterns, satirical philosophical lexicon would define a Heidegger as a ponderous device for boring through thick layers of substance, as in, it's buried so deep we'll have to use a Heidegger. <laughs> so that's what he's remembered for, his contribution. He was so fucking boring and beating around the bush <laughs> that that's what his style is remembered as. Heidegger became shorthand for shorthand. His legacy is redundant. Heidegger's like the original no questions in class guy. <laughs> he considered hands-on discussion to be chit-chat. I fucking hate this guy. Aristotle, Plato, they were saying that you can question them anytime. I don't know. Learning is an experience. Nothing sticks unless you feel like you're on a ride. Heidegger's word sign, a concept of being, cannot be easily defined, because what it refers to is not like other categories or qualities. It is not an object of any kind. So I guess I included this to say that all of our hate is warranted. All he did in his career was change the word being to sign, and now he's a philosopher. Bro, I'm sign right now. At least Dolly came up with a cool phrase, isness is the business. Chapter 3 Occupation Liberation. This author is on life support here. Sarah Bakewell. Like I'm saying, at least the artist. A lot of people think Dolly was a dandy. He's very punchable as well. But at least artists kind of make some commercial value to this shit. These existentialists in the cafe are just doing it for themselves. Fucking Sarah Bakewell. She finally ropes in Albert Camus in this chapter. So we get to go a little bit deeper. I think it's funny. How even during his life, Camus was like, I'm not an existentialist. Please do not group me in with these losers. Here, I'm making up my own word. I'm an absurdist. And a hundred years later, the fucking sad nerds are already trying to claim him. <laughs> like, imagine a hundred years from now, Nietzsche's message, it's going to be even more twisted. And the gay existentialists are already ruining his... He called it Zarathustra's ape. He's like, people are going to try to rip me off. I gotta be more like a Camus and Nietzsche. Prevent against future hacks who are gonna butcher my method. Nate's nonfiction. Nigel's nonfiction. Another one. Nate nonfiction. <laughs> this chapter starts in 1939 with the most French war tactic you're ever gonna hear of. To the French, it was the Drôle Le Guerre, or Funny War. To the Germans, the Sitzkrieg or sitting war. There was much nervousness but little action, and none of them feared gas or bomb attacks. In Paris, Beauvoir collected a gas mask from the Lycée Molaire where she was teaching, wrote entries in her diary, and tidied her room manically. Sartre's pipe has closed. She, Olga, Kaisowitz both lived in rooms at the same hotel. Where was Camus during the Sitzkrieg? He was fleeing Paris, headed to Lyon. And where was my favorite novelist during this? George Orwell. Big homie was on the front lines fighting the Spaniards in Catalonia. 
George Orwell had balls, dude. Philosophers are pussies. Camus had some balls. He joined the French resistance. I'm saying Camus more of a novelist than a philosopher. During the war, Camus made bi-weekly trips for medical supplies in Saint-Étienne, the center of the French resistance. 1940, he married Francine Foray, pianist, mathematician. In 1943, he worked as a reader and editor for Espoir series. Camus met Sarté and Beauvoir in Paris at the opening performance of Les Moches in 1943. They talked about books. Sarté had given his work good reviews in the Algier Republican. With Sarté, he founded the left-wing resistance newspaper Combat, serving as its editor. However, it was Beauvoir who authored Sarté's first Combat articles. She had hoped to have an affair with Camus. Oh no! It's all fucking incest with these people when you read. Like, the novelists sleep with the reporters so that they get better reviews. Jean Shalit, my dude, must have gotten so much sniz. Jean Shalit, the Academy Awards. That's like a reason two for Nick's nonfiction. We gotta make the deeper connections. Sarte, Camus, Beauvoir, they were all putting each other up, writing good reviews about each other in the papers. So if you control the papers, you control the artists. Like, how the fuck did George Orwell get 1984 published? If you tried to submit 1984 today, you would be labeled as a domestic terrorist. <laughs> like, Camus dropped the stranger. Right after he met Sarté and Beauvoir. Maybe he was holding on to it. Now that I wrote a book, I know. You don't just go publishing willy-nilly. You wait till you get a little bit of heat. Or someone that's going to help you promote. It gets juicier. He begged her to send him books. Cervantes, the Marquis de Sade, Edgar Allan Poe, Kafka, Defoe, Kierkegaard, Florber, Radcliffe. Hal's lesbian novel, The Well of Loneliness. His interest in the latter was probably sparked by Beauvoir's tale of her adventures, since in accordance with their agreement, she told him everything. Yes, Sante, you know how he's got a lazy eye? One of his balls are lazy, too! So Camus is having a full-on affair with the publisher. He's a notorious cheat. <laughs> And it's just, people minded their business back then. Like, you heard about every single time Johnny Depp cheated. He was literally banging the other reporter's wife. And they still wrote good reviews about each other's books. Would they just have more class back then? You could just sleep with anybody. Uh, they're talking about lesbians. I don't know, maybe Beauvoir was a lesbian and Camus had threesomes with her. Let's go, Albert! Sad boy Sarte, he's getting jealous, and he does start to trash the stranger a little bit. And I'm saying he still had bro code where he didn't publicize the affair. Quote, but Camus, in true, you missed a spot. Fashion took the place to assert his own vision of art against Sarte, who created a book in which remarkable fiction gifts the play of the toughest and most lucid minds, both lavish and squandered. Sarte is like writing short stories about Albert. He's subtweeting him. Quote, Sarté would hit back at the young and audacious writer reviewing the myth of Sisyphus with the remark, Camus has the affection of quoting the works of Jasper Heidegger Kierkegaard without, however, fully understanding them. Shots fired. 
got a full-on philosopher beef. Myth of Sisyphus, that's the only philosopher work that matters. It's an entire book dedicated on whether or not to die. And so these fucking posers, Heidegger and fucking Sartre, are like... I don't know. They never had the balls to question suicide themselves and like are philosophers. Sure, buddy. He's a publicist. Sartre's disses really didn't go over well. Everyone knows Camus got the lowest hanging nuts in philosophy. Quote, Camus died as the passenger in a car that crashed into a tree in the French town of Villabellevin. As true Sigma male fashion, his death is a complete mystery. He Paul Walkered. It's been a long day. <laughs> Quote, the author had originally intended to take a train with his wife and children, but he spontaneously accepted his publisher, Michelle Galmerd's proposal to travel in his car. There would be no return journey. Inside Camus' pocket was the unused train ticket, signifying the road not taken. Chapter 4. The Dancing Philosopher. This is a shorter chapter. It's about a young up-and-comer at the cafe that everyone made dance for them. One thinker in Beauvoir's circle who shared her vision of the ambiguity of the human condition was her old friend Maurice Marleau-Ponty, the friend who, when they were both 19, had irritated her because of his tendency to see the different side of things. Marleau-Ponty had spent the war working himself into uncompromising attitudes that went against his grain. He adopted a dogmatic pro-Soviet position, which he maintained for several years after the war before dramatically abandoning it. So this guy is a real sued. So I'm saying he would just dance for everybody. I could spend the whole chapter fucking going after the commies. It was a full-on schism after the war. <laughs> Maybe Ponty has a point like socialists. They throw a party. <laughs> Not uh, yeah, try to defend the socialists. Boulder hippies. <laughs> they throw climbing parties where they have crags in their backyard and people just pass out for the night. I, know, I think socialists do know how to party, especially when we read about all the acid freaks. <laughs> World War II ended. European artifacts are in ruin. I don't care, man. I would go to Moscow, find a Ruski, smash a bottle of vodka, go shot for shot squatting in a cold alley, just go until one of you keel over. Now that is existentialism. <laughs> we got Beauvoir asking Ponty a couple questions. They're seeing if he's existential enough to be in the club. Ponty said, Along with existence, I received a way of existing or a style. All of my actions are thoughts. <laughs> all of my actions and thoughts are related to this structure. He's all about style. Even a philosopher's thought is merely a way of making explicit hold upon the world which he is part of. And yet I am free, not in spite of or beneath these motivations, but rather by their means. For that meaningful life, that particular signification of nature and history that I am, does not restrict my access to the world. It is rather my means of communication with it. So he read everything up to this point. Bro, I'm like a phenomenologist. I am a being. And they're like, bro, you're in. <laughs> Ponty, the most pompous of the group. I don't know. It's This is how subcultures go, you know? You keep doubling down and doubling down until the last guy's a complete clown. We get a lesson about Zen from Ponty the Pony. 
the aspect of our existence that limits us is the same one that binds us to the world and gives us scope for action. They make us what we are. <laughs> Sarte acknowledged the need for this trade-off, but he found it more painful to accept. Heidegger recognized limitation too, but then sought something like divinity in his mythologist of being. Merleau-Ponty instead saw quite calmly that we exist only through the compromise with the world, and that this is fine. So, like, he's not religious. It's like all the solipsistic Zoomers out there. They make TikToks where they go to 7-Eleven and call the shop owner an NPC. A kid got stabbed recently because of this. I'm telling you, you're getting brainwashed by Elon Musk out there. You're not living in a video game. <laughs> The point is not to fight the fact or to inflate it to a great significance, but to observe and understand exactly what the compromise is. Shut up, dude. So Zoomers, since Rockstar Studios has taken so long to put out GTA 6, Zoomers, they think that real life is GTA 6. That's the Zoomer philosophy. <laughs> this fucking Ponty guy. I don't know, he doesn't even sound like he could hold a job as a professor, like these other ones can. What excited Merleau-Ponty in all of his ways was not existentialist talk or anguish, it was authenticity. It was a simple set of questions, which turned out to be not simple at all. What happens when we pick up a coffee cup at a cafe? <laughs> you picked up the cup! What happens to the hubbub all around us? What does it mean to write with a pen or to walk through a door? It means you wrote with a pen and walk through... They're just doing bad Confucianism. Oh, if one hole has a pocket, it is wise to scratch one's ball through the hole. <laughs> What's a coffee cup, man? He says, if I stand in front of my desk and lean on it with both hands, only my hands are accentuated by my whole body, which trails behind them like a comet's tail. I am not unaware of the location of my shoulders or my waist. Rather, this awareness is enveloped in my awareness of my hands and my entire stance is red. So to speak, in how my hands lean upon the desk, if I am standing and if I hold a pipe in a closed hand, the position of my hand is not determined. <sighs> He's trying to do some Kant. And he's saying that a lot of what we know is based on assumptions. <laughs> but he's like butchering Alan Watts in the process. All I'm saying is if you're new to philosophy, stay away from the existentialisms. You could go for Camus the Absurdists. The rest of these guys are jerking off. Like seriously, if you're looking for awareness, go straight to a yogi in India. And maybe don't even go to them because the fucking Dalai Lama is tongue-kissing boys. <laughs> Chapter 5, The Imponderable Bloom. Quote, The famous existentialists and phenomenologists are gone now, and several generations have grown up since. The excitement, I remember nothing like it, has become harder to revive that initial thrill. We can still find a nostalgic romance in the black-and-white images of the pipe-puffing Sarté in his cafe table, the turbaned Beauvoir, and the brooding Camus with his collared turn-up. But they will never turn up! They will never look as raw and dangerous as they used to. <laughs> I think the philosophers of the future, they're going to be like eating cockroaches in the apocalypse. They're not as hard as they used to be. But like, who YouTube actually sees as a philosopher is moist critical. 
and these other fucking people that the algorithm recommends. <laughs> so maybe she's right, but the real ones, whatever. Nate's nonfiction, Nigel's nonfiction, they might speak more measured. They can't afford to be as raw and dangerous. I was saying before, I do a Camus novel every year. We're going to have to bust out the rebel later this month. Quote, this is probably the most phenomenological one of the book. <laughs> On the other hand, existential ideas and attitudes have embedded themselves so deeply into modern culture that we hardly think of them as existential at all. Like I'm saying before, we are all much more existential than the Easterners. People, at least in relatively prosperous countries where more urgent needs don't intervene, talk about anxiety, dishonesty, and the fear of commitment. They worry about being in bad faith, even if they don't use that term. They feel overwhelmed by the excess of consumer choice while also feeling less in control than ever. A vague longing for a more real way of living leads some people to, for example, sign up for weekend retreats in which their smartphones are taken away like toys from children so that they can spend two days walking in the country landscape and reconnecting with each other with their forgotten selves. I'm saying it's kind of hard to point out existentialism because everybody is an existentialist. It's getting harder to point out the absurdities in the news because it's all absurd. That's why SNL, are they just at the point where they're making fun of themselves? You can't successfully make fun of the news anymore. It's a joke. I'm going to try to do it in 10 minutes in the bonus segment, but it can't be done. So she's talking about how the people in the masses see philosophy. And what I drew for the final chapter is a comparison to everything, everywhere, all at the same time. People flocked to that movie. And I think there's a lot of misunderstandings in it. You got Jobu, Michelle Wu, this new chick, hot, crazy Asians. She's in all the movies. In that one, the closer she gets to the bagel, the closer she gets to her super character, Jobu, the sadder she gets. And, like, maybe that's the niche. You're going to become the ubermensch, but you might lose your happiness. But people will look up to you and you'll multiply everybody else's happiness. Like, the only character who's happy in the Everything Everywhere movie is the grandpa, the guy who sits on the roof and plays with the iguana. Existentialism is a consideration of all thoughts and possibilities. That's why we see it as anxiety. It's a lot of thinking to do. Happiness is found in the small things. It's the exact opposite. So everybody who watched that movie, Bro, I'm going to become the dimension hopper. I'm going to be everything and everywhere. The only way to be happy is to pet a fucking iguana. Ponty was right. We should just be partying. Technology is just making us a bunch of nervous Nellies. I think I would want to go party at the full moon party at Thailand more than I would in America because everyone's just on the damn phones. We in the club listening to Chris Brown and hoes are still on the damn phone. In the previous century, so Sarah's talking about herself, I grew up naively assuming that I'd be a constant steady increase in the nebulous stuff through my lifetime, but in personal choices and politics, in some ways this has come true. On the other hand, unforeseen by anyone, basic ideas about freedom have been assailed and disputed in radical ways, and we are unable to agree to smaller amounts. So I'm saying we're somehow being made more anxious and more dumb 
just anxious enough that we won't agree with our neighbors. It's pretty crazy. Sarah dropping more truth hammer. Science books and magazines bombard us with the news that we are out of control, that we amount to a mass of irritation, but statistically predictable responses veiled by the mere illusion of the governing mind. <laughs> so humans are so crazy and unpredictable. But with ChatGBT, we can predict everything the unpredictable humans can do. Well, which one is it? They tell us that when we decide to sit down to reach for a glass of water to vote or to choose from whom to say the trolley problem, we are not really choosing at all, but responding to tendencies and associations that are beyond the reach of both reason and will. We're already on the fucking runaway train. Nobody's thinking straight. <laughs> not to tell you guys. The science books and the tabloids, it's broadcasting learned helplessness into your head. Learned helplessness, bro. I figured out the psychological realm. I don't know what to tell you. Reading such accounts, one gets the impression that we take pleasure in this idea of ourselves as out-of-control mechanical dupes of our own biology and environment. We claim to find it disturbing, but we might actually be deriving a kind of reassurance from it. It's what it is. You get reassured by the sad news. Like, I saw an article that cheese hits the same part of your brain that hard drugs do. So you go, I guess I'm just addicted to cheese now because I read an article. Or you fucking sack up and stop eating that cow tit slop. She says, so do we really want to understand our lives and manage our futures as if we had neither real freedom nor truly human foundation for our existence? Perhaps we need the existentialists more than we thought. Yeah, bro. It just helps to try on the existentialism once in a while to see things from a different point of view. But as I said, this cannot be a final stop on the Socrates Express. The Stoics, those are the only philosophers that are trying to make a change. <laughs> David Goggins telling you to fucking blow out your knees. It's more beneficial than this bullshit quote. The existentialists remind us that human existence is difficult and that people often have appallingly yet also show great possibilities that exist. They constantly repeat the questions about freedom and being that we constantly try to forget. We can explore the directions the existentialists indicate without needing to take them as exemplary personalities about thinkers. It's what we're doing on Nick's Nonfiction. You don't have to believe all the philosophies, but it's good to vary your informational diet. Sarte, you might have been a whining pussy, but someone's got to do it. <laughs> there it is, the Existentialist Cafe. Sarah Bakewell, I am baked. Why would you say something so controversial and yet so brave? It's a pretty good one. We're climbing the rungs of philosophy. I don't know what book can stump me at this point. I'm going to talk post-conspiracy over on the Patreon. <laughs> Getting better every week. Thank you guys for tuning in. I'll be right back with the bonus segment. Harry Shit on Instagram, patreon.com slash niche. Peace! Okay. So we went for a minute there. This is uh, 10 of 15 we're doing in the bonus. Give me the thug shaker. Show me the rump shaker. This was probably my favorite news story from the last month. The Thug Shaker Discord leaked Ukrainian headquarter positions. 
Remember back in the day, the earlier internet, 4chan was a little bit harder to navigate. I think 4chan now, all feds. It's still kind of the funniest place for boomer humor, like to make fun of black people and trans people, but like, yeah, 4chan, it used to be actual people, and they one time found like a pride flag by triangulating the stars. And that's basically what Discord is becoming. A bunch of secret groups you need an invite to go to. The Thug Shaker Discord. They dropped a Ukrainian... <laughs> you should have saw it. It was on the news. The news shakers were saying the Thug Shaker Discord. They were super detailed war maps. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. I don't really have that much information on the story, but something to know about. I also saw another sad one. New York City. A 10-story building collapsed on civilians due to faulty cement. It's a good thing we got the standard and review board out there doing their job. What else this month? What else? What else? Live on the BBC. Their intro music goes so hard. This month, Elon Musk and the BBC reporter. Do you see that one? <laughs> this is the BBC, the British Broadcasting Center, and the journalist showed up rather unprepared. Elon Musk, he's in control of Twitter and all that bullshit, so the reporter's going, I've been seeing a lot of hatred on my timeline. What are you going to do to fix all this hatred, Elon? Elon's like... Well, I think it would be more productive for us to define the hatred so we have a metric to program the site moving forward. Can you give me an example of what you saw? And the reporter's like, muffled fart. That's what came out of the reporter's mouth. He was like, well, well, it's just so much hatred. I, I can't even stand to look at it. I haven't even been looking at my timeline for like six months. And Elon's like, so you haven't looked at your timeline for six months but you're seeing a lot of hatred on your timeline. The reporter's like, that's exactly right. It's so much hatred. So Elon's like, give me one example. And they go in circles for three minutes. Can I get one example of the hatred you saw? And the journalist for the BBC didn't pull up to the interview with one example. It's pretty insane what we think news is. What the fuck? They said, like, COVID is officially over. I can't even talk about that anymore. It hurts my soul. The fucking CBDC. Central Bank Digital Coin. I don't care. <laughs> I went off for, like, five pages in my book about digital twins and what the economists are trying to do. <laughs> Check that out. It's on the Patreon. It'll probably only be up for another couple months. That's my book I'm talking about because, yeah, bro, there are ways you have to play the internet. I understand. I'm gay. What else is on the news? This one was fucking insane. So, like, I would usually just bullshit in this part of the segment, but at least once a month. I don't know. People think it's, like, productive to call this stuff out. <laughs> California did a story 
This is the CNN headline. California hillsides are exploding with wildfires after epic rainfall. Here's why this is a bad thing. So California, the state that has been in a drought for a decade. We've been hearing about the drought. When I lived in L.A., you couldn't shower for more than five minutes. For a decade, there's been a drought. And now the hills are exploding with wildflowers and epic rainfall. And it's a bad thing. (laughs) They're saying like lowlands are flooded. I watched an interview where there was this farmer and he's like, yeah, we've had the levee built for about 50 years now. We've been waiting for this. CNN reporter's like, no, 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 this this has never been seen before. The levee's right there. We built it up 50 years ago. (laughs) CNN, my point here is everything has to be bad. See how I'm getting worked up? It's all existential news stories. How is it that rain is now bad in California? There will never be anything good on these websites. Never look at them. (laughs) SpaceX crews a starship explode after launch. (laughs) Good. What else you got for me, CNN? T-Rex skeleton sells for less than expected at a Swiss auction. doing fucking cartoons here dude blue jays twitcher blue (laughs) blue jays pitcher tweeted flight attendant has his pregnant wife get on her hands and knees to clean up debate ensues so like (laughs) it's like me with the books if you find a topic that hits then you please your audience by doing that again as you notice, I'll read about bees. I really don't give a fuck to please people. But this is the same platform that the news runs. During COVID, the stories about people getting dragged off of planes, those went super viral. <laughs> and now they're still trying to make us care about flight attendants. This pitcher's pregnant wife. Shouldn't they be flying first class? I couldn't care less. Ex-Fox Inca reveals why she thinks Fox settled with Dominion. Ikea stores coming soon to eight new U.S. locations. Okay, that's a little bit more lighthearted. I like their meatballs. Pretty sure they're fake, but that's a good date. You play hide-and-seek with a chick in Ikea. End it slurping down some meatballs. If you know what I mean. I said, girl, you want to slurp on my meatballs? (laughs) TSA won't let you carry on an item that settles dispute in gentlemanly manner. This was a story about a guy with a shillelagh. I can't even bring my fucking club on the plane. And meanwhile, you got a whore with her Great Dane? That's a weapon, a Great Dane. (laughs) You can now apply for shared privacy of a $725 million Facebook data privacy settlement. Whoa. Should I try to get like a thousand bucks by saying Facebook stole my data? And then use that thousand bucks to run Facebook ads? (laughs) Dog, even YouTube now. They added a new thing in the creator studio where you're supposed to buy advertisement. 
YouTube is done. It's like as bad of an algorithm as Instagram was. I was in the heyday of Instagram meme making. I was getting 15,000 likes on a post. The algorithms change, man. I think they're going to have to come out with like a dark YouTube or some sort of new platform for video hosting where you're allowed to say bullshit. I don't even know. But that's not my main concern. I got like getting real honest here at the end. Current segment on our show called Explain That Gram. We're going to do a deep dive on our guest. Doing a deep dive on the host. Three months left in Colorado. No! You have to save up for the van. New York comedy is dying. LA! This might be the time, boys. 27 years old. <laughs> How many times can you go to LA and fail? Maybe third time's a charm. I'm going to be writing fucking scripts this time. Fuck a book. Motherfuckers watch more movies than they read. What am I doing? Gas stations in Florida are struggling to stay open. Here's why. Because everyone is on meth in Florida. That's why. I'm Colin Juiced. I said before you can't make fun of the news. Literally, you can say one thing because it's all a fucking joke. We've tested bidets for three months. We're never going back to standard toilets. Great! So I want to hear from CNN journalists in detail how they got the turds blasted off their ass from a bidet. Now that's journalism. I think we've done our part here, ladies and gentlemen. Shedding light on the collective shadow. One week at a time. Love you guys, the Knickers. I know you think we're dead because YouTube wants me to buy ads. <laughs> Not you know, They even put out another thing saying that subscriber count doesn't matter anymore. Okay, so then what does? <laughs> YouTube. Could be out here trying to connect with you guys for real. I value this relationship, and thank you. Couple soundboards. What? You never played Tuber Simulator. I played it. What are you joking about? I, I'm such a gamer. Today we're going to be going over five Fortnite YouTubers. I got a number one victory royale. Yeah, Fortnite, we're about to get down. Get down. Ten kills on the board right now. Just wiped out Tomato Town. Nick Muniz signing off. I love you guys. Thanks for tuning in. See you soon.